0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute elders are
1: sharing stories with the next generation, passing down history and culture. When you sit down and have conversations with one another, you're learning history, especially for Native folks. It wasn't what happened 100 years ago. It wasn't what happened 200 years ago. History happens daily.
0: Then Colorado is a hotbed of teen vaping. What are the actual health effects? And a bill moves forward to protect against discrimination on the basis of hair texture and type. A Denver author shares her experience with the way hair can be a referendum on race, societal norms, and self worth. Plus, the Denver band Tennis drops their new album tomorrow, just in time for Valentine's Day. What it means to singer songwriter Elena Moore. Let
2: me make you more
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute elders are sharing their stories with youth for a project called Native Braids. It's being done through Ignacio-based public radio station KSUT. The elders relate what it was like to ride horses as kids, wrestle with identity, and spend time with family in bear dance campgrounds. Most importantly, it's about preserving culture and history. I was recently in the Four Corners and had the chance to meet some of the people spearheading this project, Sheila Noneto, KSUT's Tribal Station Manager, and Tammy Graham, KSUT's Executive Director. This is a project KSUT has been dreaming up for a while. Tammy, what's the vision?
3: Really, the vision for this project of Native Braids is to be our first stab at what will become a tribal media center where we have numerous programs Um, highlighting uh, Native American culture and voices. And Native Braids really is the first uh, in this um, Tribal Media Center project. And Sheila, what were you hoping to capture with Native Braids particularly?
1: Uh, Stories from tribal elders with Native youth being the primary interviewer. And so we want that interaction between the Native youth And the tribal elder of their choice, not necessarily a grandparent or, uh, you know, an older aunt or uncle, but maybe even just a mentor in their life. So let's
0: talk about the kids and teens, because they're key to collecting these stories. How are you involving
1: them? Well, we're um, asking them to do interviews of an elder of their choice. And sometimes the matchups were not what we were expecting. We had a young gentleman who we thought that he was going to say, well, let me interview my grandma or my older uncle. And he actually chose to interview his co-worker f- from the summer. And so this is the interview between um, Bird Red and Darlene Frost, which sort of struck me as odd because I was like, how do you know each other? And then the story was like, well, we work during the summer together. And I said, well, why would you want to interview her? And he was like, well, she's my best friend. And so the age difference here is, what, 40 years, 50 years maybe? And they sat down and had a discussion. And literally, when you listen to the interview, it's two good friends sitting down and talking to each other.
4: When you were a teenager, what would you do with your friends? Did you guys go out anywhere? Was there like a certain hangout
1: spot or like
5: no. what you guys do? Nothing? We didn't do nothing. I mean, back then, we didn't hang out with anybody. For real? For real. Yeah. Um, came home and did our homework and watched TV and, I mean, we had friends, but once we left school, came home and that was it.
1: It's not question, answer, question, answer, it's two people having a conversation. And that was sort of the goal of what we were looking to achieve here is youth having an opportunity to sit down and listen, but also an elder to be heard. And then we also have folks who, you know, grandchildren who are interviewing their grandparents and hearing things for the very first time. We have an interview with Snowbird Frost and her grandma. They talk about death in their family and just a passing of an uncle or a grand, well, in our society, you know, an older person would be a grandparent. And so They discussed the death of um, her grandma's brother, which she had never spoke
5: to her granddaughter about. I had one older brother. My parents were divorced, and we went to live with grandma and grandpa. We were only two years apart. We never went over his name. My brother's name was George. He was a very good brother. He was very loyal and very loving, and he was my protector. He always took care of me when kids bullied me. I was fiercely loyal as much as he was, but he he was my hero, and he always will be. When I was 16, um, this is the sad part about my life, Uh, he was murdered in Bayfield, and um, I went to school in Denver. I was there in high school when, when that happened, so I had to come home for his funeral, and then I stayed a couple of days, and then I went back to school. So it took me away from home, and I was able to work through through that, but you never really get over it. Like I said, he was everything to me. Uh, thank you for sharing about George.
3: I mean, growing up, I knew you'd had a brother, but you didn't really talk about him so much, and If he did happen to come up, you'd kind of get this look on your face like you were somewhere else. So I never pushed it. I didn't really want to ask because I
1: figured it was too painful for you. And I understand now. You're hearing this fresh conversation, and we're hearing it for the first time as well as her granddaughter. Yeah, something I wanted to add about that is you can hear
3: in some of these Native Braids programs the youth getting that they can really ask anything they want and they're in the driver's seat. And it's really wonderful to hear that and these more and more in-depth kind of questions like, "Do, do you have any regrets? You know, like deep questions that they're realizing that, hey, what else have I wanted to always ask this elder that I feel like there wasn't quite the right moment to ask? So to be able to capture that feels like an honor and it's humbling and And it's wonderful that that there's a willingness for those two to share those stories with each other, but also with a larger audience.
0: We're speaking with Tammy Graham and Sheila Nenato of public radio station KSUT in Ignacio about their new program Native Braids. For the project, Ute Mountain Ute and Southern Ute elders share stories with youth interviewers. Before we get back to the conversation, let's take a moment and listen to an episode Graham and Nenato found particularly poignant. Nenato
1: introduces the speaker. Edward Box III is the director of the Southern Ute Cultural Department, so it might be surprising that he hasn't always felt a strong connection to Ute culture. For years, Edward called himself an urban Indian. At 19, he left Ignacio to explore his identity in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He lived in Las Vegas, Nevada for more than a decade, and in his late 40s, he returned to the Southern Ute Reservation.
4: Here's an excerpt from his story. I was really feminine when I was younger very feminine. There was times where I would change my voice, I'd keep my voice soft because I didn't want no one to know that I was a male. Our tribe never talked about being gay, you know, an alternate life. There's no thing saying, hey, they're special or, you know, they're... They have a role, too, if they identified themselves as being gay. There was nothing mentioned. I think that's part of slowly as I got into my later teens to my 20s where I started to say, well, my culture, it doesn't support who I am. Being a man is a traditional you. There are so many things that you have to follow. You know, the woman has a role as being a traditional Ute woman. Man has a role as well. And my role was to have a family, have children, a wife. And I didn't fit into that because, you know, I... (laughs) How do you do that? You know, I knew I was different. A lot of anger was inside me. You know, there was times where I'd actually, because we'd go to church on Sunday, and you know, Catholics, as I was taught, you know, that's a sin to be gay. I used to always question, and I'd ask the creator, why why am I like this? How come I have these feelings? All those years growing up, you know, as a, a child to a teen, I used to struggle with, you know, we pray to him, we offer prayers. Why, why am I having to deal with this and not getting an answer to help me understand who I was? I'd go to powwows and I'd be in my regalia as a male, dancing. And there were times where I would be out there dancing and I'd look at, watch the females as they danced and it was comforting to watch them do it. Deep down, I think inside, I wanted to do that too, but I was taught to be a strong Ute male. My grandfather would take me to powwows with him and we'd gone up to Fort Hall, Idaho, it was the Shoshone Bannock Festival. I have to say I was probably about maybe 11 or 12 they had announced that they were going to do a Tiny Tots contest. They said that the boys had to wear a shawl and dance fancy. Nowadays they call it a switch dance at powwows, where the guys dress up as women, the women dress up as men, and they dance. While well, back then, it was a Tiny Tots, and I was excited. Deep down inside, I'm like, I want to do this, because this is, you know, I've always wanted to dance at a powwow and a shawl. and one of my cousins cousin gave me her shawl and they're like go go Edward go so i went out there dancing you know like i was fancy dancing and i felt good it felt like identifying i don't want to say gay but just the feminine side the the female side i felt good inside <laughs> Now that I've come back and reconnecting with my culture, I don't even think of my sexuality. There's this comfort level now. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I don't identify myself as being a Ute man. I identify myself as I'm human. Humans go through certain things. And in the long run, it's helping them identify who they are to make them stronger. So I am a Ute man i'm also hispanic and navajo and i am human
0: That's Southern Ute Culture Preservation Director Edward Box III. He shared his story about exploring culture and sexuality for KSUT's new program, Native Braids. Yulali, a Native American women's a cappella group, sang in the background. Independent producer Adam Burke collaborates with KSUT on this project. Here again is Tammy Graham, Executive Director of KSUT. I
3: would say that particular interview is meaningful because it covers... A lot of different territory. It covers um, a youth on a journey of coming out. Um, And it also covers this sort of this hero's journey of growing up in a community, leaving to go find yourself on a a deeper level, and then coming back and giving back to your community. And I think
1: that's portrayed really beautifully in this story.
3: And what have you heard from the community, Sheila?
1: Um, That particular interview, we have had positive feedback from elders to youth. And I understand that for some Southern Ute elders, the way
0: they grew up asking a lot of questions of elders was rude. Is that something that you had to think about in the interview process and training kids to interview these elders?
1: Well, we give them a list of questions. So they have an opportunity to pick and choose from those questions. And yes, in in our culture, you know, you don't you don't question when you're being told, but we had educated both. You know, like, this is what's expected of you, or this is what we're we're putting in front of you. And you're going to be asked questions. And if you want to answer them, yes. But if you don't, that's okay. But we didn't have one person, I think, who really stepped away from a question. Uh, they, they were all very forthcoming and very honest. And the conversation that grew from the questions is... good part of the interview you know that's the gold right there is because they they were sharing of themselves things that you, you didn't know about your grandma or your grandpa or whomever and a lot of our elders that were interviewed they're from the Vietnam era they were activists they were finding music they were finding all these different things in their life and they were rebel teenagers during that time you know and so these kids are getting to hear that and They're seeing them as, like, somebody cool. Sheila, your Southern Ute. Are you learning things about the elders in your community that you didn't know? Oh, yes. Um, And that's one thing that I really enjoy about radio is I enjoy sitting and listening to people. I love hearing other people's stories because the person sitting next to you, you know, you could have known them your entire life, but you don't really know them until you sit down and have a conversation with them. And I've done that several times, where I've sat next to a person, and just sparked up a friendly conversation. And the next thing you know, forty-five minutes later, I've heard more about their life than probably people in their own family. And it's just listening to them. And I think we've given these kids the opportunity, or these youth, the opportunity to to learn a little bit more about interviewing, learn a little bit more about being active listeners, um, how to draw a topic out of an individual and to grow that topic and so that it's something that is worthy of listening to.
3: And Tammy, is there a sense of urgency that if these stories aren't preserved now that they might be lost? Absolutely. I mean, we know that the loss of indigenous languages is a, is a major issue throughout Indian country, you know, indigenous communities around the world. Um, so there's definitely a cultural preservation element to this project that, Is vitally important.
0: The first batch of
3: interviews focuses on stories Ute, Mountain Ute, and Southern
0: Ute elders shared. Both tribal nations, of course, have reservations in Colorado. As you continue this project, will you continue to focus on the experiences of Native Americans in Southwest Colorado, or do you plan to extend this project beyond that?
3: Absolutely. We our plan all along our vision all along was a big vision. Start the project here. Pilot it, the project here. Learn um, because it's it's complex, and you know you want to be culturally sensitive and thoughtful, and not just barge in and say we'd love to hear your story. And you know, so our vision is to expand throughout Indian country. You know, most logical next step would be to Hopi or Navajo um, communities, but. We'd love to have this program throughout uh, expand throughout Indian country in North America. We've talked about getting a mobile y- recording unit and driving it around and pulling it up, you know, to a community and capturing interviews right there. So, And I understand that you're creating Native
0: Braids for both Native and non-Native listeners. Are there challenges in making a program
3: for both audiences? You know, we aired these stories on both of our signals, the Four Corners public radio signal and the Southern Ute tribal radio signal. And it was so wonderful. The feedback that we got from a Native American listening audience and a non-Native listening audience was really positive. And so for me, it just feels like we are so uniquely positioned as one of the first tribal stations to be founded in the country in 1976 to be the one bringing these stories to a broad listening audience because it strikes at the heart of, as a non-Native person, like, hearing these stories, there's so much a feeling of connection and empathy. And, like, wow, that was a really tough story to hear. Or, wow, those you know, I've had some of those same experiences. So there's that sense of connection and empathy, I think, across the board. We're all human. And these are human
1: stories. I agree completely. It's very true because... The feedback that we were getting, we weren't sure. It's like, are people going to understand what we're saying or what we're talking about? But everybody can identify with the story, everybody. And so when we did start the project, we talked about like one thing that everybody has in common, they wish they had recorded the people in their lives. And you can find that no matter where you are in the world people wish that they had taken the time to sit and record somebody of value in their life, whether it was, again, a grandma or grandpa, an auntie, an uncle, a mentor. Because when you sit down and have conversations with one another, you're, you're learning um, history. And history, we'd also mentioned this, history doesn't just happen, especially for Native folks. It wasn't what happened 100 years ago. It wasn't what happened 200 years ago. History happens daily. We're such a small demographic, a small population in in this country that our history happens here every single day. And we um, have the opportunity to capture that. And what happened in my mother's time 20 years ago, 50 years ago, um, is history. It's Southern Ute history and it's what makes us who we are where we came from where we are um, and everything in between that's the history and that's the important stuff I wish I had the opportunity and to sit down and record my grandma growing up um, because we had daily conversations and now I sit back and think now what? Did, how exactly did she say that what did she say did I get it right if I had had that opportunity I should have took it and I think that That crosses over generation, that crosses over, you know, cultural lines uh, and just people in general. Everybody wishes they had that opportunity, not just Native people, not just Anglo people. Everybody has wished they had taken that opportunity in their lifetime at some point. Do you have any advice, something that you've learned from this
0: process that you'd share with someone who's thinking about sitting down and recording an interview with someone in their
3: life? I would say really put some thought into what you want to ask and really think about those questions that, you know, maybe going deeper into something that you knew, but you have more questions about. Ask the things, you know, respectfully, but that you've always wanted to to know about. Because most people, especially if it's a relative or someone you're close to, I think if they, they hear your sincerity and deep interest and true interest, they, they're willing to share.
1: What about you, Sheila? What's your advice? Well, I mean, if, if you're going to sit down and spend that time with somebody, make sure that the time that you're spending is valuable in that you are asking the right questions and that you build upon those questions as well. And you're asking questions that aren't open-ended. A yes and no question can kill an interview easy. But if you're asking, like, what did you do when you are growing up? What was school like when you were growing up? And write everything down. Make sure you're scripted a little bit. And then that way you're getting the good stuff.
0: That's KSUT's Executive Director Tammy Graham and Tribal Station Manager Sheila Nenato. KSUT collaborates with independent producer Adam Burke on their program Native Braids, a show in which Native American youth interview elders. The interviews are online at nativebraids.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: I believe in comeback stories and second chances, and I believe in recovery. I'm Vic Vela, Weekend Host here on CPR News, and now I'm hosting a new podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering cocaine addict myself, and I've been talking to people who have made their own comebacks.
1: I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. A counselor in therapy has changed my life for the better.
6: The first episode comes out February 21st. Listen to the trailer and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org.
0: State lawmakers are considering new measures to combat runaway rates of teen vaping. It's well established that Colorado has one of the highest rates of teen vaping in the nation. But what are the actual health effects of vaping? CPR health reporter John Daly took that question to doctors at Children's Hospital Colorado.
6: When I ask lung expert Robin Dieterding about the health risks of vaping, she's blunt.
3: You're inhaling a chemistry experiment, and that's bad for your lungs.
6: Companies marketed vape pens as a safer alternative to cigarettes, but the research that's emerging suggests some of the potential dangers are similar. Take, for example, the puffy clouds that come out of a vape device, secondhand vapor. We do believe secondhand
3: vape smoke can stimulate asthma exacerbations or asthma
6: problems. Those clouds contain potentially harmful substances. We asked CPR's audience what they want to know about the health risks of vaping. One asked, what are the long-term side effects of nicotine addiction once a child has started vaping? The magnitude
3: of the number of our youth that are participating in some degree of vaping is
6: extraordinary. Many teens believe they're inhaling harmless water vapor, But it can actually contain high concentrations of nicotine, as well as particles linked to lung disease and cancer. The doctors say vaping impacts kids in at least three key areas, the lungs, the heart, and the brain. First, the lungs. Dieterding says those foreign substances can harm tiny, delicate airways. If you're going to do it long term, we're seeing some of these airways. You know, you have air tubes that lead out to these air sacs. The
3: cells in those air tubes are also being damaged.
6: Dieterning says it was this kind of damage that caused the recent rash of vaping-linked lung illness. One study has found a link between vaping and increased odds of asthma and chronic lung disease. Dieterning says long-term risks are real because lungs are so sensitive. Once you start a scarring process, it's very difficult to reverse. And it's not just the lungs. Research suggests vaping may be bad for the heart, for cardiovascular health as well. Here's pediatrician Steve Daniels.
7: We know that cigarette smoking has a
6: very negative impact
7: on arteries and the heart.
6: Cigarettes can raise blood pressure and heart rates and cause vascular disease. Daniels says scientists aren't sure if the same is true for e-cigarettes. But increasingly, studies are raising alarms. One last year found adults using e-cigarettes had higher risk of heart attack and coronary artery disease compared with non-users. Daniel says more research is
7: needed. You know, it hasn't even been around long enough to know what the chronic effects might be. But maybe we don't even need to know that because we do know that for those who are
6: vaping nicotine, it's incredibly addictive. That gets to e-cigarettes' third big health risk, addiction. Teens are especially vulnerable. Industry says e-cigarettes are meant for adults to quit smoking. But Daniel says many young vapers will go on to become smokers kids as they become adults
7: may switch to smoking. And then we know very well what the impacts of that are.
6: Nicotine can harm adolescent brain development and alter brain chemistry. Child psychiatrist Joel Stoddard says, at least in research on young animals, there are permanent changes in neural pathways for attention and memory. And it makes you more prone to goosing that reward system that means teens who vape aren't just at risk for nicotine addiction. They're also at risk for mood disorders and reduction in impulse control. And nicotine can also impact attention and learning. So how do we help young people quit vaping, another CPR listener wondered. Good question, Stoddard says. There's not a lot of good evidence for any kind of treatment. He says there's been decades of investigation into quitting smoking traditional cigarettes, Stoddard suspects some of those programs and medications may well work for young vapors. The goal now is to find out what parts of those work, translate them over for vaping, and to implement those programs on the treatment side. Stoddard says with cigarettes, peer pressure and support can help teens quit. With vaping, that's a challenge since so many are doing it. Daniels says another obstacle is the scale of the problem. When you think
7: about, uh, you know, 10 percent of middle schoolers and 30 percent of, of high schoolers, that that's a, a fair number of kids that need help now.
6: Finally, one CPR listener wants to know which is really worse, vaping or cigarettes. Daniel says, though, more is known about cigarettes. The answer is they're
7: both bad and maybe extra bad because they reinforce each other. you
6: Almost can't think of one without the other. Daniel says if you look at all the bodily systems affected, neither has a place in a healthy lifestyle. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
0: The State House passed a bill on Wednesday to prohibit discrimination on the basis of hair texture and hair type. The Crown Act would also protect hairstyles like dreadlocks, afros, and head wraps. Crown stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. The idea that hair can be a referendum on race, societal norms, and self-worth is something Denver author Ebony Flowers explores in her graphic novel Hot Comb. I spoke with her in June. I understand the idea for the book came while you were working on your doctoral dissertation, but you were also inspired by watching hair videos on YouTube.
8: Yes, I was. So writing a dissertation can be very stressful. So one thing I did to relieve stress was to watch YouTube videos put out by Black women who specifically focused on their hair. And most of them, they did videos about what to do with their natural hair because uh, at some point, they did what is called the big chop. So they cut off all of their perm and started to grow their hair out naturally. And so they put out these videos to um, show people how they took care of their hair and um, what products they used and stuff. And so I was like fascinated by all, with all of this, even though at the time I still had a texturizer in my hair. Um, anyway. Uh, a lot of them started talking about their own um, hair journey, and and part of that was, like, their first perm. And their stories, I realized, were a little different from my experience with my first perm. Hmm. So I started to draw that out, and I just decided to make a comic about it.
0: In those videos, they featured something called the natural hair community. Tell me a little bit more about that as a community.
8: I like the idea that there is a a community out there of of black women who are celebrating the hair that grows out of their head without any kind of permanent manipulation. But with also within that community, there's some, there's some people who feel as though there's still hair texture discrimination. So there's Mm -hmm. still um, like people who have looser curls than other people get more attention and maybe more sponsorship on YouTube. And there's, um, and viewership on YouTube, and there's um, a lot of backlash about that. And um, people with kinkier textures feel as though they are being ignored in mainstream media and then also in on YouTube. So,
0: And is that where the idea of good hair comes in?
8: Well, good hair, that term has been around for a while. So my grandparents used that term and my parents used that term to describe different—my uh, cousins and my, and my hair. And so it's a term to— to distinguish between black people who have looser um, curls or straighter hair than those who who don't. So there used to be a test, like a pencil test. So if you, you put a pencil in your hair and it, it stays, then you don't have good hair. But if the pencil falls through, then your hair is quote unquote good hair. Oh, wow. Um, I don't think people do that anymore, but... That is a thing I heard my grandmother talk about.
0: And this idea of hair as a gateway to acceptance, did you write the book to foster those kinds of conversations?
8: I wrote the book for uh, black women in general, and I wrote it so that black women could see themselves in stories, in everyday stories about uh, just trying to live um, while you have... You're, you have this physical outward appearance that society as a whole may not ex- readily accept. So that's that was my primary reason for writing it.
0: And you say that black women's hair, it's often policed. What does that mean?
8: Our hair can't just be as it is. And so um, it's more than just the hair that grows out of our scalp, and uh, our hair is policed in the sense that when I walk down the streets, for example, it's not uncommon for someone to make a comment about my hair. And whether it's a good comment or it's something that's a little bit of a microaggression, you know, that's to be um, for the person who interprets it. But I can't just walk down the street and not have my hair commented upon and whether you're or not. you're
0: sharing like what something somebody might say?
8: So I was in Toronto last year and in my mind, I had this idea that Toronto was this um, uh, safe space for black and brown people because it's, so, it's such a multicultural um, city. And so I wore hair wraps there, not thinking twice about it and I had a lot of negative comments um, from people uh, with my, when I, whenever I wore my hair wrap. And in the book, I mentioned this one time I was on the subway and a woman came up to me and started asking me about Um, my ethnicity because of my hair wrap and so she was asking me if I was Muslim and trying to get around like why is my hair covered up kind of thing and for me it's just a fashion statement so my mother covered her hair up too and she also wore wigs and my grandmother wore wigs and so it wasn't anything out of the ordinary um but they are doing something very normal, which is covering my hair became this big thing. And so I actually felt bad for people who, for women who are actually Muslim and have to, like, cover their hair up all the time for religious reasons because I can only imagine, you know, the pushback they get um, and they deal with every day.
0: And so hair and how you wear it or even cover it and how people react to it, it can be a symbol of racism.
8: Uh yeah, definitely. It can be a symbol of racism and, and, and also can be a symbol of the beauty standards that just women in general have to live up to. And it's pretty tough to um, live up to standards that only fit to a certain small, very small percentage of people. And I think one of the most
0: touching moments in the book is the first time you get your hair permed, and you already mentioned that.
8: (laughs) Touching moment, yeah.
0: (laughs) There are a lot of elements to it, including peer pressure from kids at school, but after it's done, you're in the car with your mother, and you notice her crying, almost as though there's been a loss. What does that scene mean in the context of this discussion we're having?
8: That story is one of the um, real uh, um, autobiographical stories, and... For me, I was trying to understand why she was crying. So she, uh, my mother died when I was 15, so I've never actually asked her about it. So I was exploring that in that um, story. So I think there's kind of, um, my mother might have been crying because I I was growing up. Um, and then also, there is an element of, I think, loss in in this understanding that Black is beautiful, too, when when you straighten your hair and my especially in my family, my mother always I mean, my mother didn't always wear afros. I mean, she wore wigs, she straightened her hair. I mean, she did lots of different things to her hair, but um I think part of it was that she might have interpreted me straightening my hair as me internalizing this idea that my hair isn't beautiful the way it is. Mm.
0: Ebony Flowers of Denver is the author and illustrator of Hot Comb, a graphic novel that captures her coming-of-age and life experiences viewed through the prism of hair. We spoke in June. This week, the state house passed a bill to prohibit discrimination based on hair texture and hair type. If it becomes law, Colorado will be the fourth state to pass such a measure. Denver band Tennis has been going strong for more than a decade now. Singer songwriter duo and married couple Elena Moore and Patrick Riley started Tennis after a sailing trip, an activity that's continued to be a creative outlet for the duo. Moore and Riley's strongly melodic pop rock songs are instantly charming and don't seem to belong to any particular era. Tennis will release their fifth album tomorrow. It's called Swimmer. Awardist Elena Moore joins us now. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into the new record Swimmer. We're hearing the song Need Your Love. It's got some fun tempo changes between verse and chorus. You wrote on Twitter that this is your favorite song the band has written. Why is that?
9: Oh you know every once in a while I'll have a song that is very resilient and can handle every single idea that I have. Normally I find myself in the situation of like Giving up or sacrificing all of my favorite melodies or um, musical arrangements that I'd like to do with the song. In this one I wanted to do the tempo change really badly and I can't believe the song held up (laughs) through all of my wildest ideas. Um, It just felt like it was uh, the perfect conduit for everything that I wanted. I love this idea of a song as a sort of resilient vessel for
0: ideas. Um, you also refer to this album as your most beloved offspring, and
9: it sounds like records are sort of like children to you. Uh, yeah, especially since I make all of my music with my husband and we are childless. Um, all of my friends are having babies, but I'm making albums. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's I feel like uh, we're doing our job when every release feels stronger than the last one. I feel like this is the only instance of parenting where you're allowed to have preferences over your offspring. So, yes, this is my favorite. The best album, Child. Uh, This album, it comes out on Valentine's Day. Uh, Like you said, you're making music with your husband. Was this date intentional in some way? No, it's just good business. There's, like, tons of numbers that show albums released on Valentine's Day do better. (laughs) That's fun. Um, Swimmer certainly has some romantic
0: songs on it, though, including one that you wrote specifically for Patrick for your 10-year anniversary, the closing track, Matrimony 2.
2: No one knows of love that's low like the longest breath or the gentleman.
0: back to this song, do you think that it represents how you feel about Patrick?
9: Um, Well, I wrote a song called Matrimony uh, three years ago as an anniversary gift for Patrick, and in it I described our wedding day. We were really young, inadvisably young, when we got married, uh, I think 23. Um, And so now, with 10 years of marriage to reflect on, I wanted to write that song again and see how my relationship to being married and even our partnership has changed. And one thing that I noticed is the idea of growing old together, which is sort of a, like, uh, I don't know, ritualistic or even flippant promise that you make, especially when you're in your early 20s. I mean, that's just a hypothetical. You feel immortal. Um, So now at 35, thinking about that and actually growing old together and even losing people, um, experiencing, you know, loss and making sacrifices. It just changes the nature of your relationship, and I wanted to write a song that described that.
0: I also wonder, when you're making music with a person you're married to, I feel like a lot of couples, they get to move through a moment, good or bad, but when you're making art and
9: memorializing those moments, how is that as a band? Uh, For me, I feel like when we write a record together and I am choosing to write a song like this, I am trying to catalog something that felt um, uh, like if that felt monumental or um, significant to the course of our relationship. Um, it's sort of, I almost feel like I'm doing archival work more than catharsis, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I love that. This is the first uh, tennis album that you've recorded in your recently built home studio in Denver. What makes a good space for you and Patrick to record? Um, I so much went into the construction of our own studio. We have spent a lot of time working in studios around the States with a lot of different producers and with each experience we would leave and make, you know, we'd have a lot of notes of like what worked for us and what didn't. And my favorite experiences always were in the studios that felt more like home Whenever we worked out of a producer's garage, that would be my favorite rather than working out of Electric Lady or Sunset Sound or something like that. I like feeling like I'm in a safe more of an everyday place. Um, so our studio is, feels, it feels like home to me. It's like very soft. All the soundtrack treatment, I did like velvet upholstered walls instead of like those hideous egg crate things. <laughs> um, but I want it to just feel like very conducive to the writing process because so much of that is done in the studio as you refine your ideas, as you're committing to them. And I think our album really benefited from having a place like that to work out of.
0: We're speaking with Elena Moore of tennis. The Denver band's new album, Swimmer, is out tomorrow. One of the central tracks is Echoes.
2: You said get a doctor. My life's going under. She's up where the sun isn't shining. I thought I
0: It's a catchy song, but this one was inspired by an experience you recently had on tour where you were hospitalized.
9: How did that shape this song? Uh, Actually, as soon as I was regaining consciousness in the hospital, I thought I would be writing about this soon after. Um, I used to think about song lyrics like poems, and then I started thinking of it as short stories. And I read a lot of Paul Simon's lyrics just like disconnected from records, just printing them out and reading them. And I always feel like he did such a good job of making a pop song out of what might be like very, very dark, extremely personal um, events in his life, like a divorce or something like that. And I wanted to do something like that with this very specific account Where I'm hospitalized on the road, and we might have to cancel tour, and Patrick was terrified, and I woke up screaming, and um, this one was very, very, like, special to me and very conceptual initially, and I am amazed we were able to pull it off normally when I want so much out of my lyrics, it's really hard to get the whole song to, like, wrap around it, but it came together in this really um, special way.
0: And do you mind sharing briefly why you were in the hospital?
9: Yeah, I got influenza on day one of tour, and I powered through about 10 days of shows until I just lost consciousness one day. Yeah. yeah, it was really unfortunate. You know, tour is one of those things where you can't just rebook it. <laughs> um, there's so many moving parts and so many people coming from so many places, so... I committed to getting through it as long as possible and till I finally my body gave out on me.
0: Wow, I feel like I'm doing well to get out of bed and keep the house in like reasonable order while I have the flu. Um, this is the band's second release on its own label, Mutually Detrimental. Now that you've been doing it for a few years, how has it changed the way tennis makes music?
9: Um, I think what we really wanted was a lot of autonomy. So that we could make really specific choices to us, we had been in the experience of having like delivering a finished album to a studio and then them saying, you know, there's no single here, go back, keep writing, keep writing. And I just felt like that doesn't allow for the artists to refine or trust their own instincts or pursue whatever they're truly interested in. And I feel like if the writer isn't passionate about what they're doing, then the listener will be able to hear that. And so striking off on our own has allowed us to write exactly the way we want to. And you've also gotten into producing music for other artists, including a couple of Colorado acts, Downtime and Esme Patterson. That's a new venture for tennis. What have you enjoyed about that so far? Yeah, we've kind of fallen into that due to our experience with home recording. But it's been just amazing to do. Um, I've learned that I mostly prefer working behind the scenes and being in the studio. That's where I feel like all of my skills are most put to use. And also, I have so much more freedom when I'm working on somebody else's songs instead of mine. (laughs) It feels... um, I I really like the collaborative spirit of the whole thing, and I really like trying to provide another artist with the environment that they need that's most conducive to the work they want to create. Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Elena Moore is one half of Tennis.
0: The band's new album, Swimmer, is out tomorrow. Tennis performs at Denver's Ogden Theater on April 10th. We leave you with another song from the album, Runner. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.